recorded in room 233 of the Texas Tech University School of Veterinary Medicine. This is the Rate of Vet Podcast. Today, we will have two conversations between the people involved in the production of this podcast. First, Anthony Goldsmith and Drs. Jennifer Kozil and Clayton Cobb. And later, Drs. Pippa Gibbons, Kelly Williams, and Michael Cruz-Penn. Hey, everyone. How's it going? Good. How are you today, Anthony? I'm doing, doing good. Uh, <laughs> we, got, <laughs> we got the Raider Vet podcast crew in here today. Uh, I'm Anthony Goldsmith. I'm the, the resident mad scientist. And with me, I've got uh, Jennifer and Clayton. And uh, yeah, so this podcast, I think we're, we're taking a little bit of, um, of a break from what we typically do. And we're kind of just uh, going to have more of a conversational thing about, uh, I don't know, just our, our roles here, what we do, and kind of get a little more personal about the, the team that's behind the podcast, if you will. So, uh, Clayton, I got some questions here. Hit me. <laughs> Describe yourself as a student. At which stage? All of them. Uh, I mean... I, I just wanna... want to imagine a five-year-old Clayton Cobb. Um, I was morbidly overweight with a flat top and I didn't pay attention in class. I got the red card a lot. Uh, you know, I think now they do like clip ups. Have you ever seen those where they like, take like a clothespin and they'll write a kid's name on it and there's different like uh zones. Oh, no, that's what we had. Green card was good. Yellow means like watch yourself and the red is you're going home with a note. Right? <laughs> oh man. My parents' signatures at the age of like five. For sure. <laughs> That's sure. impressive. Uh, forging signatures at five. Oh no, they didn't buy it. They, they didn't. They <laughs> you, never believed. You're just it. like you're just learning how to write letters, and you're putting your initials down. Kinda, it's just terrible. You have them sign one, and then you just. I definitely got in trouble for the same thing. I got in a fight at school, and uh, like I, I got this note, this attention slip, and I had to take it to my mom. And my mom like worked like really late all the time, so she's straight up just like. She wasn't home before, like, I got to get her to sign it, and I forgot to, like, ask her in the morning. So then I went to school the next day and realized that, oh, crap, I didn't do this. And, I, I like, I got in trouble a little bit, but never like that for, for fights. So I decided that I was going to sign it myself, and I, you know, gave it to her. I was probably in third grade, and the, the woman who worked, like, the resource room uh, just like took one look at it and went, what is this? <laughs> they didn't buy it. And so I didn't know how to react. So I just started crying <laughs> and like, it, Same, I, I got a little bit Same. of sympathy at the time. She's just like, just go home and get a sign dummy. Like, like it's <laughs> just take it, bring it back tomorrow. Like, what are we going to do, do on a daily basis? It's okay. Just don't know how to react. <laughs> you just crying. don't know how to react. So you just cry. <laughs> start whenever, crying. whenever I know and that I've gotten in trouble, I just start away. crying. <laughs> <laughs> what about you? What about you, Kojal? Oh, well, I was a little bit, bit of a mix, right? So I was a pretty good kid in the fact that um, I rarely got in trouble at school, but I was also a boundary pusher. So I liked to know exactly where the line in the sand was, and I'd push to get there. I was also quite a bit of a daredevil. So um, like I can remember getting in trouble for like climbing to the top of the swing set, um, flipping over the bars of the, um, like the slide and things of that nature. So, Gangster. 
I definitely like watched myself. I was too hesitant and scared of something like that happening to me, but I found a way to crack my head open at least once a year. You know, knock on wood, I had, I've only had one broken bone and it wasn't until I was in my residency that it was that. How'd that happen? Um, I had to save a student from a bull that got up from anesthesia and we were it got up sooner than we expected and so I uh, did the mom arm and got the student out of the way but then the bull knocked into me and I hit the concrete wall and so had a little fracture in my wrist but yeah so didn't break a bone until I was in my residency. That's a good record, Damn. though. That is. So far, I've never had stitches, never broken a bone. Like, I've gotten hurt plenty, um, mm -hmm. but never had those two things. Yeah. It's, I've I don't had know, stitches a lucky. lot. What about high school, then? How were you uh, in high school, Clayton? Were you a cool kid in high school? I thought I was cool. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I was. Uh, I don't know. I did all the sports and all that, and... I, I, what'd you play? Football, baseball, track. So I was a sprinter on four by one, four by two, four by four. They opened one, two, and four, and I threw javelin, which was awesome. Love javelin. And then uh, football, running back, quarterback, linebacker, and baseball, I pitched and played first. I was in marching band and I played bass clarinet. Man, the girls are all over the you. worst <laughs> instrument. <laughs> hey, uh, I mean, I did, meet, I, I did meet my spouse in marching band. So, what did she play? Uh, flute, piccolo. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, I mean, were you good? No, I was not. She <laughs> was. I, I played trumpet. <laughs> I played trumpet in seventh grade and eighth grade. What yeah. about you? I know were my... you, uh, Jennifer? Um, were you cool in high school? So I was cool in a different way. So I would say <laughs> because I was heavily involved in FFA and high school rodeo, I had lots of friends that went to other schools that had similar interests. And so I kind of ran around with the cool kids in high school, but I wasn't very involved. And so played some softball and but didn't play any high school team sports but so i had ag kid yeah i was i was the ag kid that had new people at lots of different schools and so we would go places and people would be like how do you know them i was like oh yeah we hung we hang out like i was so anti-ag growing up my yeah. brothers were very involved in ag and i was the jock that didn't care about ag and yeah. look where we are yeah oh i went Things i mean change. like all the like FFA leadership camps and stuff like that went to those high school rodeo show cattle like new people like always involved in agriculture like bless What's my your favorite class ag oh. because <laughs> I really like science too what? like <laughs> what? No, way. no way I really math was super easy I really like chemistry and biology um, but ag class was like where I could just like chill out. And then like, I was, this is going to super surprise y'all, but I was really good at organizing. And so I would like answer the phone and I would do all the paperwork and stuff like that. And, and so sounds was, like a blast. It was a good time. And I could weld and out weld the boys. And that was my favorite. What was your favorite, Anthony? Okay. I mostly hung out with all the like theater kids. Yeah. I was a theater so, kid. It was, uh, I, I did, uh, Tech theater. I wasn't like good oh, enough to to like sing or uh, or dance or anything like that. But I did uh, tech, so uh, that just basically meant that every day after school, you're spending, you know, six seven hours with a, another group of other kids from uh, October to November, and then again in March and April. 
because we had like a in the beginning like a play in the fall and then in the spring we had the musical so you're literally just working all day every day after school and it was um it was cool but uh pretty much just drank a bunch of mountain dew and like chugged monster energies and wore black all the time and it was were it was you like time. av or well what do you mean like what old did you were uh, i was a grip so i was the guy doing the ropes and stuff but what i also did uh set building so would makes do sense. all the sets explains and, a lot right it makes sense. yeah no it's uh i mean well i was doing all that stuff even because my my actual first job i ever had when i was in high school uh, i was a carpenter so i was building houses when i was 16 with my dad um, but i would do that in the summer or during breaks and stuff and yeah that's how i made money it makes sense and now it's his job See, all the time. Yours makes sense. Yours makes sense. I think I'm still just winging it. Just you're just faking it till you make it. I guess <laughs> you can you can change. I kind of changed know, my interests career every like four years though. Well, same with me. Yeah. True. I mean, you're just an enigma, friend. You're well, what just... other careers have you had, Clayton? Aside from like before, up to up into like veterinarian. Like, what were you? I was doing, doing research for tech for a while in immunology and nutrition, and then before that, I was running concerts. Uh, I did that for a lot, did sound and did concerts over in Lubbock and then some a little bit in South Texas. Before that, uh, I don't know, I was looking to go into medicine for a bit. Not sure, just kind of floated around. I worked for the National Forest Service for a bit, we worked for the USDA for a bit, Youth Conservation Corps. I was Smokey the Bear in a parade once. <laughs> just stuff. I don't know. Just stuff. Just see what happens. I got paid a whopping $75. No, it was free, and they wouldn't let me talk, and that's difficult. I guess you're not supposed to talk with the head on. I could just imagine like you trying lock. to make, like, Yogi Bear sounds. <laughs> <laughs> hey, 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 don't serve forest fires. Only you can prevent forest fires. It was me and Woodsy the Owl. And you know, he has a partner. Woodsy the Owl? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, that was new to me, and... My buddy was Woodsy, and he talked a lot. Then he got in trouble. It was fun. <laughs> what, what about you? Did you always want to be a veterinarian? Yeah, so I have a very, I don't know, I, was, I always say it's a very typical veterinary s story. So grew up on a ranch, um, knew that I wanted to be a veterinarian very early on, hung out, like tell a story about we were doing an eye nucleation on a cow, our veterinarian was, and I was pretty much up in his Kool-Aid, and so he had to hand me a pair of cow clamps just to keep my hands out of the way so he could do what he needed to do. And Then you stole them. Nope, I gave them back. Um, I, I, I was a ranch kid, right? You put the tools back where they belong, right? So they didn't belong to me. They belonged to him. I'd have stolen them. <laughs> Difference between you and me, Clay. Yeah. Difference between you, you and me. You guys start building your surgery pack at some point. <laughs> I guess so. It's just acquiring tools from other people. Like, <laughs> in my had, back seat has I've had these cool towel clamps since I was five there, years old. There's really only like one person who's ever bought surgical instruments, and everyone else is just taking them from like everyone else. Mine and my truck I actually bought, though. I'll say yeah. that. I didn't steal those. So you're the one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so I had a very typical knew that I wanted to be a veterinarian very early on. And so. When I was uh, in school, I wanted to be a journalist. Really? Yep. And uh, yeah. that, I got into college and went, nope, I'm not going to do this, and had some family stuff happen, so I joined the military, mm -hmm. and then I was a combat engineer, so right. I, I was like, I'm going to go take small bombs and put them on big bombs and <laughs> make them all explode, and 
So then made the obvious transition then to um, working as a middle school teacher, which was fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but in between there, um, actually, my first job I had when I got out of the military while I was uh, back in college was I, I worked as a lineman. Yeah. So I climbed telephone oh, poles and yeah. said a wineman. Yes, a wineman. I, I wish that would have been so much better. <laughs> no, instead, what is, it's... It? what is a wineman? A, som a sommelier? Is that what they are? <laughs> a, person, a, a wine connoisseur? I have no idea. I, I think so. <laughs> Google that, Michael. Depending on the night, I'm a wineman. <laughs> but it's uh, no, I, I basically just left from there and then I was teaching. And then uh, kind of uh, when I did that, I taught stem applications so like robotics and 3d printing and that sort of stuff and the skill alignment kind of just right coalesced so how did you get into 3d printing and was that all self-taught or mostly self-taught uh it's actually kind of funny because i i pretty much saw uh an ad mm -hmm. for a 3d printer for uh basically a it's it's called the it's a creality um ender 3 and it's like a cheap one. It was like the first like really cheap 3D printer we could get. And there was a the guy at my school who would run uh, kind of like the STEM robotics like department, which was pretty much like one person, which was him. He taught it. He ran it, did everything. And I went and showed him this. I was like, hey, like you've got like this money from this program. Like you want to do 3D printing? And he was just like, actually that's awesome and we should totally do that and he basically bought it and then he set it down in my room and said figure it out because you're gonna teach it <laughs> and i was like uh hell yeah <laughs> okay and then uh yeah i put it together figured it out learned how to use it did some cad stuff and yeah it's i don't know it just lined up uh but where'd you go to college at where'd i go to college yeah a couple different places whereabouts um, I first went to Western Michigan University, which is local to where I grew up. And then while I was working as a, a lineman, I actually finished my degree online. So at Walden University, which is like one of those for-profit garbage schools. So, uh, <laughs> this is a promo for Walden University. Well, I, had, I had like, um, like uh, three semesters left and I just needed to find one that was like the best for like a schedule. So I just, yeah, you, the, you could just get it done pretty much. Yeah. And I worked full time while yeah. doing that. And while doing national guard stuff, I was just yeah. busy and it was are the you, only way it worked are out. Are you still in national guard stuff? No, no. no so I'm <laughs> You're done. This is a problem. I'm done. I'm, done. I'm, pulling, I'm out. I'm out. And there's nothing short of like a nuclear conflict. That's going to like drag me back in. So, uh, <laughs> We'll keep it that way. Um, so, as far as like being from this area, like I know, uh, I mean, I'm not local to the Texas Panhandle at all. What about you guys? Hit it, Kojul. So, I guess it depends on what you consider local. So, home for me is five hours away. So, south of Tulsa is home for me. So, Okey. I'm just an Okie <laughs> from close to Muskogee. <laughs> Kinda. Which is which is the truth. So um, I I would say regionally it's very similar. So I am glad to be home um, amongst um, people who have similar interests. So being back in ranch country is really good for me. Um, so I guess it depends on how you define local. Like this region and this demographic of people, there it was not 
surprising to me when they came here. And, and one of the things that drew me back to this area, I, I wanted to come back to my roots. And this is about as close as I can get. And I actually spent probably a fifth of my life in West Texas over in Lubbock during grad school and undergrad. And so some experience over here. And I have family that lived in Amarillo, but originally I'm from Northeast Texas, further south than Cozal. And then I uh, lived in New Mexico for about seven years, South Texas for about five and kind of all over. So coming back was kind of like a homecoming. I'm familiar with it. So the wind and dust today, I don't know what is it hitting, like 70 miles an hour outside? It's ridiculous outside. I'm, I'm kind of familiar with it. Yeah. doesn't really surprise me when you can look directly in the sun and it's red. It's fine. Yeah, there's there's like a, a, a gray zone of wind that I've figured out so far because I have not lived here for very long, mm -hmm. but I've, I've figured out the gray zone. It's pretty much everything between... 40 mile an hour gusts and like your house blowing away is all about the same. Like it feels the same. So as long as we don't hit that level, we're usually pretty good. But didn't you lose something like blew down in my, your pasture? No, my chicken coop blew away. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> your chicken coop blew away? Today is bad. Like yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if your stuff's gone. So I was kind of dumb and I had like this, this chicken coop, which was more or less just like a metal cage. And it was like outside against my barn. And what happened was uh, I put a tarp on it to like keep the weather out well it wasn't anchored down or anything it had nothing holding it down and as soon as we got like a, you know these 50 mile an hour wind gusts it literally just picked it up and i thought y'all lost that during like a rainstorm not it was a rain it was, okay it was yeah a rain and we, like it was, yeah. it was nasty back in the spring but yeah. um unfortunately i did have a baby chick die that was like two days old and i was actually like really distraught over that because like um you know, it's Anthony. well, it's like I, I felt bad because it was 100% my fault. Like, if it, it, it'd been one thing if it was just a storm yeah. and it was like, you know, bad or, you know, like a, yeah, an animal got it or something, but it was yeah. pretty much just because I was dumb and forgot that it gets windy here yeah. and put that tarp on. So I felt pretty bad, but all the other chickens were fine and the, the guinea hens that I have are all fine and they're all big and loud and annoying now. So, yeah, but at least they'll keep the snakes out of your yard. They do. And, and they I, will alert you to intruders. And no bugs either. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. guinea, I've guinea had hens. And I just didn't pay attention. To <laughs> oh yeah, guinea it's hens are even... like the ultimate like <laughs> alarm of teenagers sneaking in the house. They're also the alarms of anything existing ever, and they just yell all the time. <laughs> yeah, it's really bad. I mean, bad thing about <laughs> guinea hens—they're like an alarm system that never goes off. Good things about them, they eat ticks and snakes. They do eat. See, I think that was the intention of me having some back in Paris, but I think I just fed the coyote population because <laughs> we would start with 20, and then by that fall, I'd be down to three, so I'd buy more, and the next you, spring, I'd be down to You must have not like got five. very smart ones. Usually, they, like, roost and, like... Mine do this crazy oh, yeah. thing. They actually will jump up onto the chicken coop, and then they will jump up onto the roof of my barn, and they just stand up on top of there i'll huddle in a line and just mm -hmm. yell all night it's like it's like yeah. the coyotes probably don't come near simply because they're annoyed like i'm not going over there it's loud but... i wonder what guinea tastes like uh i don't probably know like chicken 
I'd say they're they're like uh they're very similar to turkeys. So probably something close to that. Like yeah, any other the fact that they eat ticks just grosses me out just enough to What do you think chickens and everything else eat? I know, but I that's why I'm going for like the production line chicken. I don't the grass fed see or grass fed, yeah. Grass, pre range pre, yeah, the grass fed pre ranging chicken. You so have some of those vegetarian yeah. chickens yeah. like uh, like Chipotle had, yeah. don't you? <laughs> It's healthier, you know, uh, tastes horrible, but <laughs> do y'all remember that when, when Chipotle was like, our vegetarian chickens, our free range vegetarian chickens. And something else happened recently with them. I can't remember what it was. They like partnered with, sorry. They're I, also I going to rant. like a host to like a third of all the countries like salmonella outbreaks. Cause they've have terrible sanitation. Are we talking about chickens again? No, we're talking about Chipotle. Oh, I thought we were on like guineas or something. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> anyways, now that Chipotle will never sponsor this podcast ever. That's um, okay. We don't want their money. They're not um, friends of agriculture. Sponsored by Chipotle. <laughs> That's not true. Don't. I don't want to get Moe's is going to be calling up. They're just going to be like, are there Moe's around here? Uh, it doesn't matter. Or Qdoba. One of those other burrito places will call us up like, hey. I don't know what either one of those. We really are. liked oh. how you were talking all that smack. You about don't know Chipotle. about Moe's? I've been to Freebirds once or twice. Man, Moe's is good. I like Moe's. Moe's is pretty good. I like Moe's. See, I like a good burrito. I just, I don't get out much. <laughs> I don't. I don't think any of us do. <laughs> That's true. It's Wait, like, but somebody asked, where's the good places to eat? We're like, Joe Taco, Fuzzies, <laughs> Torchies. All the places that are within like two minutes away. Yeah. Yeah. To Coulter. Anything down yeah. Coulter. Yeah, because like if you go over to like uh, Bell or Western, everything's under construction right now. I made the mistake of going to Western for lunch today to, uh, to go to the potato factory and I forgot that they have the whole road like tore up. I don't even what know what the, the potato, potato factory is. You ever been to the potato factory? Is it just like baked potatoes? It's just like potato stuff. Like Fries. they yeah. Tots. Yep. I do love some tots. But they have these. Uh, Where, where's the meat? I need. They're the, literally just baked potatoes that they just like open up and they just throw stuff on them. Like they throw uh, pretty much whatever you want, but they do like ham, sour cream. They can do chili. You can do like tacos. I'm trying to watch my style. figure. It it's actually no. It's it's horribly bad for you, <laughs> but it's uh it's really good, really cheap, and you get a ton of food. Anyways, now that we've plugged every restaurant. <laughs> In the local area. Um, so let's talk about our roles in the vet school a little bit. So uh, Clayton, what is your role? What are you doing now? And what do you want to do in the future? What am I doing now? Um, I'm working with the students in clinical and professional skills and then also teaching animal care and husbandry. The clinical and professional side is everything from ultrasounding, uh, to placing a catheter, to performing a spay, to tubing a horse. So all the hands-on stuff and then the communications aspect of professional skills. But I guess that also ties in like medical record keeping and everything else. So it's variable. Uh, it's all the preclinical years. So I didn't get to luck out with just doing a semester and focusing on something else the next semester. It's continuous through all of it. As you know, building models and working with us, it's, it's a lot. Do you think it's uh, advantageous to be doing it all throughout the three years? Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, and this is another plug. Come work with me, GVPs. I need help. Uh, just for us to get more hands on deck. I think with once we get all four years with the students here and max out on uh, student population, I mean, it's going to be busy. Oh yeah, Real busy. it's gonna be so hustling all the time. Yeah, yeah. and what we're constantly hiring faculty and staff, and 
getting everybody involved. So for clinical and professional skills, it's not really limited to just the general veterinary practitioners. I mean, Kojol helps us, you help us, Cruise Pen helps us, just everybody that can join in on, depending on their specialty and what their interests are and their strengths. And so they join in in all the labs and I think orchestrating the clinical examination. I don't even know, there's like 48 different faculty and staff there helping run the thing. So it's pretty exciting, lots of fun. So like, give somebody that's listening like a 15 second, like bird's eye view of what the GVP position does. Everything. Everything. So everything preclinical, right? Yeah, everything preclinical from first semester and applying anatomy within radiology and trying to integrate histo and histopath alongside the microscopy hands-on skills over to parasitology and micro. So putting it all together so that we can get the students to be that confident, competent ground or hit the ground running veterinarian and have those skills preferably by the end of third year. So when they enter the clinical year in the distributed model, They've seen it. They've done it. Right. Because that's the hardest thing is for me to explain, like, what you and Bethany do, right? I'm like, um, they do all the stuff. Coordinate. A lot of it's coordinate, and we fall back on people like y'all to say, okay, yeah. how can I do this and do it right? And how can we teach the students things that I should have improved on too? Because with the GBP, uh, I mean, it's so variable that it's nice to lean on the specialists that know the little bitty details to help you improve your medicine. So working together and trying to teach the gold standard and hoping that the students can take as much of it in as possible and be able to apply that with the practice partners. We're hoping they can teach a lot of the practice partners the new medicine, the new techniques and things they've learned from us. Right, it's kind of like why we put ultrasounds on their hands in day the one. first day, right? Very so first that day, 4 p.m., they got ultrasounds. Yeah, so. so when they go out into those practices, they're just zooming around. Hopefully. Hopefully, Hopefully. if we do our job right. If we do our job. Well, we got Cruise Pin helping us. Thank goodness. <laughs> so, uh, Dr. Koch, what do you do here? Uh, a little bit of everything. So, uh, my official title is Food Animal Medicine and Surgery, but I'm also a boarded theragenologist, or for my friends out there that don't know what a theragenologist is, I'm a reproductive specialist. Or as I tell people, I'm like the OBGYN of the animal world. So, really, um, I joined the faculty in June, and since then, we have just been participating a lot in clinical and professional skills. So pretty much every Tuesday this fall semester, I've been part of clinical and professional skills. Um, my cohort, Pippa Gibbons, and I, we really started building out the food animal curriculum, built out the Therio curriculum, so that we can look ahead and say, we can tell Clayton and Bethany, hey, these are the labs we would like to do in third semester, fourth semester. This is where we're going to teach what, when, and so that we can start integrating our curriculum so we can have things together. Yeah, the food animal side, they're on top of it, getting those lab outlines <laughs> in and having everything on time and having the plans and supplies. It's been great. Yeah, I don't know. Helped us out. Pip and sure. I, we make quite the team, so. PB and J. PB and J. Yeah, <laughs> we're pretty. We're good. We're good by ourselves, but we're better together. Yes. What would you? Um... Wait. What, what about you? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, okay. <laughs> if you say. If you insist. Uh, if you, if you, if if you, you insist. <laughs> uh, no. Uh, just. I guess I'm colloquially uh, referred to as the mad scientist. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I. My actual title is uh, clinical skills modeling technician. Just model. 
Yeah, it's not modeling. Mo- it's not modeling. Yeah, no, I, there's no catwalks. Uh, no in, Calvin in Klein. <laughs> no. Arrange something. I, I got Goodwill and Walmart are my two like premier outfitters for sure. So, um, <laughs> uh, Walmart. No, just throw it out the ads today. I, <laughs> brought to you by Goodwill and Walmart. <laughs> If you want to dress like me, uh, go to Goodwill. <laughs> yeah, so I uh, I basically just am a maker of things. So if there's a um, a manipulative that we use in class or during a lab, or if it's something for training, even like anatomy, uh, I use a series of techniques and tools and skills to make stuff, uh, whatever ends up really being needed. So I've made everything from little block things that hold uh hoofs so they can train how to do uh hoof trimming and that sort of thing i nailed literal cow ears to a board so they could learn processing also put together some of those breeding betsies which are interesting i'll let everyone google that um and uh to by breeding betsy yeah and i mean i've made fake veins uh every time made fake blood made uh, all kinds of crazy stuff so if it needs uh you know carpentry done it needs silicone molds poured i did those you talked about doing the uh uh the butterflies the um ultrasounds one of my first projects we did for class was make um basically phantoms where um students could use the ultrasounds to scan and find objects within a silicone mold so i literally went out into my yard got some uh coyote bones and suspended them in some uh gel and uh uh also some like screws and you know just random things that you what might else did find you put inside the molds I, <laughs> I mimicked a bladder so that so we made like fluids inside of the mold so that oh, they could see that yeah, I, I won't tell you. But I'll, I'm not going to share the secrets to the trade. Okay, what it was yeah, made it's out of. a good idea. <laughs> it's a trade secret. We it's can't tell. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's patent pending. And <laughs> there's, um, I mean, it's it's pretty cool. So I uh, also used 3D printers and the CNC machine just got put together in the uh, makerspace. So I'm really excited to start using that outside of just making lines and stuff, which is pretty much what I've done so far. I haven't done anything really cool, but if if something needs made, it's my job to figure out how to make it. So that way um, we can kind of get around the, because I if I'm understanding it correctly, kind of the old way of doing veterinary medicine, and actually still the current way is to use a lot of cadavers and things like that that aren't necessarily sustainable. Uh, there's also some ethics consideration, and it's also very costly because, um, you know, you can't just have cadavers of bodies just laying out like they have to be stored uh, and we still do those things for for learning but uh this way now we can do a lot more clinical practicing uh before a student even gets to touch a live animal for the first time or even a dead one yeah the models can be pretty dang expensive up front but the fact that you can use them without having to go through protocols, animal care and use, and actually get re- repetitive practice without having to pay for feed and water and housing and bills and stuff so that they can use those as much as possible before the only next logical step would be a live animal. Right. And that, and that's, you kind of brought up an important thing too, is just like uh, animal welfare. Mm-hmm. Like you can't, um, you can puncture 
a uh, a fake vein on a model horse a hundred times, and the only thing you've done is make a mess on the floor. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas you couldn't, you physically wouldn't be able to do that to a horse without it being, you know, a big ethical concern, without it, you know, potentially even endangering the animal. And that's not a good way to learn. And that's also just, you know, it kind of defeats the purpose. If we're going to be training veterinarians, if we were hurting animals no in the process right. of doing it, that that's not after. Yeah. Well, and I think for the learning side, for the students too, that they're able to, I mean, they can come in after hours, they can work on these models, they can bring them home and work on the models yep. and they can have that repetitive exposure without having to. They can get practice. Issues. It doesn't have to be quite in like the same official capacity. and. um you know, about, uh, you know, we talk about what we're due, but of the things that like we want to do, the things that we want to talk about, even just in relation to this podcast, like um, we've used this podcast to kind of talk about a little bit about folks in their research. We've used it to talk about, um, you know, even talk with students. We've had students on the podcast. Um, how do we going forward want to use this podcast to, uh, just in the future for our own means? So I would like to use this podcast as a way to bring our community closer. So when we talk about our core values here at DTU, community is one of our core values. And so I think this podcast is a fun place to talk about research, to talk about, um, we've thrown around ideas of having journal club where we get together and discuss journal articles that may have a theme. And so, you know, we that goes to a wide variety, right? It can go to mm-hmm. veterinarians, it can go to our vet veterinary students, and there can be, you know, the public that may be of interest in that. And so, it kind of is one of the things that I really look forward to about this podcast in the future is growing and bringing things to the community that the community wants to hear. I like all the above. I think there's a, a reason and purpose for all of it. And the research is fun and interesting. Bringing in people from the community, like. Um, how we've had Patterson and Glenn and all them come in just to discuss what they do. And I mean, still within the veterinary community of Texas, which is what we're trying to focus on is the rural regional communities around here in our area. So it's nice bringing them all in and meeting people and learning what they're all about and how they're involved with animal care and any of it. So I think there's a spot for everything. I think there's an area for the students. There's an area for administration. There's an area for going to the research. And there's times like cutting loose right now where you can just hang out. Well, I think it's it's an awesome way to show what we do in veterinary medicine, right? And all the different stories and things that people bring to the table, right? We've got the opportunity this fall to interview some awesome people. Glenn Blodgett, J.D. Poe. Who else have you interviewed, Glenn? I've had Baloo from down at main campus. Uh, Kent Glenn from over uh, Dallas-Fort Worth area. who works with a lot of the shelter committee. And TVMA just yesterday had Donovan Patterson in from the Texas Parks and Wildlife for the yeah. freshwater fisheries. Just random. I love it. Yeah. And so that's really cool. And all of these all these people that come in and talk and share their experiences and how they got to where they are. And I think that's cool to show how veterinary medicine really like can run the gamut. Mm-hmm. And so see, and I'm I'm a big fan of just like science communication in general. And I think overall, this podcast is like kind of a unique opportunity to not, you, you know, you mentioned community um, of, you know, the, the community has made a large investment in this, not just this building, but in us and everything. Right. And 
our duty as a school is to provide high quality veterinarians to serve communities like this one and in this region and you know where else and i feel like there's a lot of folks who kind of understand what a veterinarian is and does to a degree like they go whenever their animal's sick or they go whenever you know they need to spay their their dog but they don't um really understand that it's a lot more than just you know being a mechanic for animals there's right. a science component to it there's a business component to it there is yeah. um you know just in general we're talking about like overall the the effect of animal husbandry animal welfare and how it impacts not just our community but literally the global community it's animals and humans have yeah. relationships going back thousands of years if it wasn't for yeah. you know animal husbandry um back in ancient times we probably wouldn't get to where we are now and i feel like veterinary medicine kind of encapsulates a lot of old ways with a lot of new ways in a way that's multifaceted and actually really interesting well and that's one reason i really love veterinary medicine in general is they're not just spaying and neutering but looking at food production and supply chain looking over at fisheries, looking at the beef cattle side, looking at the dairy side, just putting butter in your fridge. I mean, it all comes down to veterinary medicine. And then, you know, a lot of those individuals that also work in industry, that work with uh, scientific development communities, that work within research. I mean, you can do almost anything with a DVM and not have to, I mean, you could go work for a university. I don't, I'm not a specialist. I don't have a PhD mm -hmm. yet I'm here. So yep. the I mean, range we have, on it is outstanding. We have folks in this building who've worked in human medicine and in animal medicine. We have people in this yeah. building who, uh, you know, explore all kinds of, you know, crazy facets of how your food ends up from being a, a thing to getting to you. And they, they, they're the ones, I think a lot of people kind of just anticipate that they're always going to have access to, to a lot of the things that they consume all the time. Yep. Um, and that's just, that's just one facet of you know veterinary medicine. That's not even yeah. like the, and, the whole. And if you uh, think about the cancer research that we have coming out of this building, and I mean, I think that's where we talk about One Health, right, and how mm -hmm. veterinary medicine and human medicine intersect and really grow and build off of each other. And so, yeah, it doesn't really matter if it's you know general practicing, uh, you know, parasitology, uh, epigenetics, like there's. All kinds of different realms of things in science that actually um you know coalesce and and kind of uh, really part of our daily lives yep. and uh yeah we're very fortunate to have a part in it we are aren't we it's never ending never you learn something new every day in a well good way, of course. you say never ending but unfortunately this podcast does have to end so <laughs> go ahead and uh and I think wrap it up. So, yeah. well, thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks. Playing host for us today, Anthony. Yeah. It's going to be a good weekend. Yeah. It is Friday. It Let's is bounce. It. <laughs> Have a good one. This is going to be the last episode of uh, the podcast until the break. Um, so for the first time, they're going to let me speak into a microphone. I've been 
mostly working in the background with you guys to uh, ensure that there's uh, something going on in the podcast every couple of days. Um, but I have Pippa and Kelly here with me today, um, and we're going to sit down and have a little bit of a conversation about ourselves so that our listeners can get to know the people that are going to be making the interviews and uh, doing the podcast in the future. Um, so I have a few questions here for you guys. Uh, you guys have listened to Pippa and Kelly before, um, so I want to know a little bit more about them. Um, so maybe we can start with uh, Kelly, um, mm-hmm. and you can tell us uh, what has been your um, experience and how did you end up here? Uh, which we had that conversation a little bit in the podcast that you had with uh, Ryan, with but Ryan. anything mm-hmm. that you were not able to tell us at that point. Yeah. Um, so my my history at Texas Tech is that I started at Texas Tech in 2006. I went to graduate school at Florida State University and then did a postdoctoral fellowship after that in my internship at Duke University in the Medical Center. So I've been at Texas Tech since 2006 and in the Department of Psychological Sciences until I joined the vet school in 2020. And my my role here um, has been offering psychological services to our students. I've taught in several taught several lectures to the students about mental health and how to know when they need to see me and some strategies to take care of themselves, making sure they're eating and sleeping and all those those things. Before I came here, though, I had a very traditional psychology department position. So I taught undergraduate classes. Mostly abnormal psychology was kind of my favorite. I also taught in our graduate program. We had a a doctoral program, still do, in clinical psychology, and I was one of the faculty in that program for the time that I was there. Mentored graduate students. I have a long list of of people who I mentored over the years that I follow their careers, and I get text messages from them about how they are and what's going on, and I I Facebook friends to see pictures of their babies and their families and all those wonderful things. But then I also uh, had a, a pretty significant role in doing research and have focused most of my research on suicide risk over the course of my career. And that has focused on uh, suicide risk in older adults and people who live in rural communities. Um, so that's kind of my um, kind of where, where I was before I came here. So I know that I. Uh patient doctor confidentiality is a big thing with you so obviously you can't tell us a lot of what you have been talking to him but can you give us an idea of how much we are affecting the students or not necessarily us but the school itself how much is affecting the students so far sure so i our students are very similar to students in lots of professional programs in that We have a lot of students who are very used to doing really well, being at the top of their class and being successful. And at the same time, like most other professional programs, students have typically not been in a position before they've come here of being responsible for the number of classes, the amount of material, the rigor of the exams. Uh, as they are here. And so for most people, that creates some feelings of being overwhelmed and anxious and worried about whether they're doing okay and going to be okay. Good. Yeah, I think uh, when I went to school, it would have been great for me and for many of my classmates to have uh, 
someone uh, that we could go and talk to about these things. Um, so let's move a little bit to Pippa, um, and uh, you can tell us also how you end up getting in here. Sure. Well, um, as you can probably tell, I am not from Texas. <laughs> so I grew up in a very rural area in England um, and ended up doing an externship in Kansas when I was a vet student and fell in love with rural America. So that um, ultimately took me to um, Texas A&M to do my residency in food animal medicine. Um, all the way through vet school, I wanted to be a dairy consultant, um, but that kind of changed after my internship. So I did ended up doing mostly beef, uh, cow-calf, individual medicine, and small ruminants. And in the process of my residency, residency fell in love with teaching. And so um, I stayed in uh, on faculty at A&M for several years and then moved to Lincoln Memorial, uh, which is in Easton, Tennessee. Um, did ambulatory medicine and teaching there, and then... Um, my husband is on faculty here and is from Texas, so we were excited to come back and raise our family in Texas. Um, so we ended up here at Texas Tech in the Panhandle. Uh, so so you're also one of the uh, uh, power couples here at the vet school, which uh, we mentioned a little bit in one of the podcasts where you talked to John and you were talking to Ryan, mm -hmm. so you were both together. Um, the school has a very... Um, family-oriented, community-oriented um, yeah. um, idea or ideal, maybe, yeah. uh, of what we're trying to do here. So how do you think that uh, having so many couples here could bring that uh, sense of community up a little bit more? Well, I think it means that when both of a couple are employed here in the region, you're more likely to stay um, mm -hmm. and... I think it's good for the students to see, you know, women raising children, having, um, you know, a, quite a demanding job in terms of balancing all the things that we need to do in terms of research and teaching and, and a few years clinical work as well. Because um, that's pretty, it's pretty unique here in terms of the, the family atmosphere that if we have a sick kid, it's okay, we can work from home, we can work it in, people will cover for you. It's really, really nice not to be felt guilty for doing those things. Yeah, we do have multiple uh, people here that have kids, and not just one kid, multiple kids. <laughs> and I, sometimes I wonder how they do all the things that, that they do while they're raising those kids. And it's they're doing a great job. I met most of those kids were here for Halloween. Mm -hmm. They were very good. <laughs> they were very nice kids. Um, so you mentioned, Kelly, you mentioned that the school that you went to, I, I'm not going to say how long ago that was because that's <laughs> it's probably been a little while. Nice. Well, I said 2006, so that dates me a little bit. Okay. <laughs> um, so what were you like when you were a student? Um, I was a very serious student. I So my, my graduate degree is in clinical psychology. And as a frame of reference, when I interviewed for graduate school, I ended up being part of a cohort of 12. And we were told when we interviewed that there were many hundred people that applied. And I knew the odds of me getting in in clinical psychology were very slim. And so the whole time I was an undergrad, I was very concerned with making sure that I did all of the things. And so in my field, that meant getting some clinical experience, getting research experience, all those things. Um, and then I also had a job when I was an undergraduate. Um, I think I chilled out a little bit more over the years as a graduate student, um, but I certainly had some stumbles. I was very overwhelmed and anxious when I started graduate school with the volume of material 
I frequently felt like everybody else was better prepared and smarter than I was. Um, and I certainly had times over the course of graduate school where um, things just didn't go well and I didn't get the grades that I was hoping for and um, kind of needed to go back and relearn things that didn't quite click the first time. Um, so those some of the some of the experiences that I had. Uh, Pippa, you did your vet school not in the U.S., correct? Correct, so yeah. you have a very similar experience to what I had in regards of uh, how we do veterinary schools in other countries. So can you tell us a little bit about that and then how you were as a student? Yeah, so um, we go straight from high school to vet school. And in my case, I went from a very rural community. There were 60 people that lived in the village that I grew up in. Wow. And I was probably related to about 50% of them. Um, and a high school class of 26 to a vet school in central London and a class of 180. So it was a massive culture shock. And mm -hmm. uh, certainly struggled with building friends and different environments. Um, I was probably way too studious in the first two years. I actually took a year out of vet school um, because I thought I didn't want to be a veterinarian. So I went and did a degree in ag for a year and decided that I didn't want to be a farmer. I actually wanted to be a farm veterinarian. So um, went back into a different school, a different class, and and basically had grown up a little. So um I was still very studious. I worked very hard and did very well in vet school, but I was able to enjoy uh, friends more. I lived um, on campus my entire vet school career. So I was actually on the back row on the very last seat because I was permanently late to class, <laughs> which meant that I have not had time, good time management skills being a veterinarian <laughs> my whole life because I didn't practice as a student. Um, but uh, yeah, I think uh, one of the things that I learned to enjoy was to have things outside of veterinary medicine. So I was actually a competitive lifesaver in college and went to the world championships and all my friends were non-veterinarians, which was really fun. What is a competitive lifesaver? Yeah, so uh, you know, it was a team sport where we the, um, there's like a fake emergency, like a fake car wreck or a fake drowning accident and you're judged on a team how well you rescue people. Huh. Yeah, as well as like swimming races as well. That's very cool. Yeah. <laughs> it actually sounds like a lot of fun, yeah. So how old were you when you started veterinary school, or how I was, old is people average in England? Yeah, most of us were 18. I was 18. Wow. Yeah. So it's uh, it's a very different ethos than here. And obviously, we, we lived with all undergrads. So while they were, I don't know, going to parties and having two lectures a day, we had an eight-to-five schedule. So Wow. Yeah. yeah. I remember a lot of jealousy with the people that were in other careers and yep. they were, had parties all the time. And we were like, yeah, no, we can. We had finals tomorrow. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, the experiences can be very different. And when you talk to people here and you tell them the ages that we go to school in other countries, they get completely surprised because it's very different. Most of, I think our younger students here are 21 or 22 and they feel like they're super young. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, it's a very different culture. So uh, we had, um, when no no school, no classes on Wednesday afternoons. So a little similar to our Friday afternoon um, here where we don't have any classes. Um, and that was used for team sports and things like that. So it was a nice break in the middle of the week. 
But we also had a bar on campus that was situated <laughs> halfway between the colic barn and the library. So <laughs> we didn't have and a drinking age is 18, by yes. the way. So <laughs> uh-huh. drinking age in Costa Rica is also 18. Uh, and we didn't have a bar at the school, but our veterinary school was completely apart from the rest of the university. Um, and it was in the middle of coffee plantations. So it was a couple of miles of coffee plantations around us. So we were able to throw in a couple of parties there without having any problems, but uh, the, we didn't have a bar. And it's probably a good thing because it wouldn't have been very good. I think people in Europe are more used to drinking in a social way and they yeah. can control how much they drink. I think people in the Americas are a little more into uh, drinking a little bit excessively. So we need to talk about that. And, and how old were you when you were in vet school? So um, I was 16 when I started veterinary school. Um, wow. My parents didn't want to have me home, so I started school very early. <laughs> um, it's, it's different over there. Most people are at 17, 18. Um, there were a couple of situations when I was in uh, grade school that made me uh, advance a little bit faster. Um, it was a little bit different, I'm not going to lie. Uh, it was a little bit hard to be 16 and in vet mm-hmm. school because... I was still, I still had the energy to other things. So when I was in vet school, I was doing karate. Mm-hmm. I was a cheerleader. I was doing, I was playing soccer. I was organizing the soccer championships in my school. I was part of the Costa Rican karate national team. So I had to go to the gym and actually work out for mm-hmm. the team several times a day. So um, plus you were putting a 16 year old to try to learn anatomy and physiology when I, I was still thinking about, I don't know, Power Rangers or something uh-huh. else. <laughs> So yeah, it's it's a, it's a little bit of a different experience, um, but most people were very uh, welcoming. All of my classmates. I went to a small school. Um, I also grew up in a very rural community, like uh, um, Pippa was saying. I grew up in a place that was surrounded by banana plantations, mm-hmm. and it was miles and miles of bananas. And we were uh, uh, in a place where they uh, grew cocoa, what mm-hmm. you do chocolate out of. Uh, and there was a lot of slots everywhere, which people now look at them and they're like, oh, they're amazing. I'm like, yeah, we, I grew up and they were like squirrels to me. They were everywhere. They will get into our house and what do animal? things. Slots. Oh, oh sloths. sloths. Okay. Yeah. It's, hard, it's a hard word for me to say. <laughs> but, so what sloth in your life? Uh, both three-toed and two-toed okay. uh, were in there. Mostly what we had in the in the area where I was living were three-toed, but every once in a while a two-toed would go cool. to the... The territory was pretty fun. Mm. Um, but yeah, experiences are a little bit different in other places, uh, which I think this school has done a very good job at bringing people from other countries. Mm-hmm. We have people from pretty much every continent in the US and in the world, sorry. <laughs> uh, I think and, we have faculty from 14 different countries. Yeah. It's yeah, um, pretty amazing. So how do you guys feel that that makes a difference uh i don't know if it makes a difference for the students for the program that we're trying to create here what what do you feel about that i mean my perspective is the more broad and diverse the perspectives that that we can share with our students and share among us the better it is that Mm -hmm. it, it creates a broader view and a broader understanding and everyone brings their own little different a way of learning and different cultures that people can maybe relate to or learn from. And it's, yeah. 
So talking about that, uh, Kelly, you and Ryan have been here in uh, the area, or at least in Lubbock for a while, correct? Correct. Um, me and Pippa moved here for the vet school. Mm -hmm. So maybe you can give us a little bit more of a guidance of what Amarillo is like, or how, how do you see it since you're a little bit closer to it? Yeah, I'll do my best. So we i can say a lot more about what lubbock is like than amarillo we moved here before you guys did uh, we moved here in june of 2020 uh, which has actually made it kind of a, a slower learning curve for us in terms of learning amarillo because of the pandemic um, and so we we really enjoy the part of town where we live. We live in an older neighborhood with lots of trees and it's really beautiful right now with everything decorated for the holidays. Uh, but we've been kind of slow in learning the restaurants and all that kind of stuff and really only recently have started to, to figure out all the places that we might go. So, um, I mean, for me, I can speak more broadly to the kind of West Texas community in that, uh, when we came to Texas Tech, we really didn't assume that it was going to be a long-term thing for us. We figured with our dual career situation, it would be a few years, and then we would we would look elsewhere. And so it's been a real blessing for us that we've we've been here as long as we have, and it's been a good thing for both of our careers. But what we love about West Texas is the people. And certainly we we were much more a part of the community in Lubbock than we have we have been so far here. Of course, that takes time and we haven't been here long enough to to really establish that in the community. But the thing that we always were just so impressed by with the culture of West Texas is how much people were invested in their community and their neighbors and getting to know people and being there for people when people needed it. And uh, on main campus, you know, it's 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 a stretch to say everybody knows everybody, but it doesn't take very many people that you know to get to lots of other people that all know each other. And for us, certainly having been here for so long that, you know, it, we know a lot of people in the community at Texas Tech and have just really enjoyed getting to know people in lots of different departments with lots of different areas of expertise and emphasis. Pippa, how, how have you feel uh, so far living in Amarillo, being a, a foreigner and somebody that has lived in the U.S. for a while, but not necessarily in Texas? Yeah, I mean, I think in general, I've always been surprised that I've been so well accepted in Texas in general. And that goes from when we lived in Central Texas for a long time as well. Everyone's so friendly here. And I think being rural although in a bigger city is kind of nice you know everything that you kind of need is here in Amarillo mm -hmm. you know and if you want to go to the mountains it's not you know it's four-hour drive and um, so from our perspective with two small children there's lots of things to do mm -hmm. um, because there's everything you need is here um, and, and we actually live in Canyon so we're not too far from the um, Palo Duro which is beautiful for hiking mm -hmm. um, and we live in a nice little neighborhood and we know all our neighbors for the first time ever in anywhere we've lived so it, that's um yeah, we've settled in well. So I'm not used to the wind. No, I'm not used to the wind yet. I keep forgetting to bring things inside. <laughs> the wind is so much calmer here than it is in Lubbock. We, Ryan and I were actually commenting on that, that the dust storm that we had recently here was the first one we could remember since we've lived here, where it's kind of a every few week occurrence oh. when you live yeah. in Lubbock because there's not nearly so many mature trees that sort of break up the wind. Mm. 
So both of you are raising kids. Uh, how do you feel Amarillo is like uh, for that particular reason to raise kids in the area? I mean, it's been a blessing for us thus far. We've really, really liked the school that our daughter goes to. We live in a neighborhood where there's lots of kids. Um, we don't know a lot of them yet, but we certainly see lots of evidence of children with swings and other <laughs> things like that in the neighborhood. Uh, and there just seems to be a lot of activities for kids in the community and, you know, people seem to like kids here. So, so that's been great. Yeah, have, we've had the same experience. We like where our kids go to school. So, You have a, a similar living situation than um, TJ was mentioning last time. You also have a lot of animals at home, correct? Uh, we do. We have uh, two ponies, uh, a pig, potbelly pig, uh, 15 goats, and five chickens. Wow. Um, I think that's everything. Yeah. So... We're a little bit of the um, the crazy people in the neighborhood, so our um, property is, is on a corner lot, so everybody slows down to look at everything. And to make everything funnier, like we have bull goats, which are brown and white. I have paint, two paint horses and a springer spaniel, so they laugh that most of our animals are brown and white. So, <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's interesting because um, the definition of rural community, it's very mm -hmm. different depending on where you come from. So. Yes. As I explained, a rural community for me was a place of like maybe three, four houses surrounded by a plantation of something else. Mm -hmm. uh, or maybe for somebody else will be a couple of houses and a lot of cattle around. Mm -hmm. um, so Amarillo has that thing where people have told me a lot that this is a rural area, but Amarillo itself doesn't feel like rural to me. Right. It feels more yeah. like a city to me. Obviously, somebody coming from New York might come here and be like, no, that's definitely rural. <laughs> yeah. But um, I think it's very interesting. So let, let's talk a little bit about the podcast. How, how, how have you guys feel so far uh, doing this, uh, having conversations with the people that you have uh, managed to uh, talk to, recording your own voice? A lot of people don't like their sound of their own voice. but Well, I have to admit, I haven't listened to any of the ones I've done. <laughs> but I did send them to my mom, so... <laughs> It's been fun. It's been a new experience. And it's interviewing. I never interviewed someone before like that. You know, I talk all day to students and to producers and things, but it's a new, new experience. It's been fun. I listened to the first podcast that I interviewed somebody when I interviewed Britt. And then I haven't listened since because I've opened up one of the, the next one was the one that I recorded with Ryan and I opened it up and immediately did not like the way my voice sounded. And so I closed it and I haven't listened to that one or the next one. So I definitely share in those that feel funny listening to their own voice, but I thought it was a great deal of fun as well. I have also had no experience recording a podcast and honestly haven't listened to a whole ton of them either over the years. So uh, for me, it's been a lot of fun though. So when we first started the podcast, uh, um, I was talking to a couple of people about it and uh, then those people will tell me, oh, there's these other people that have been talking about podcasts that might be interested. So um, at the beginning, the idea was like, maybe I can sit down with the, our colleagues and uh, mm -hmm. the, the students and people that come over to visit and talk to them. There were so many of you interested in uh, mm -hmm. in participating of it that it gave me the chance to just sit back and mm -hmm. try to work on the 
trying to figure out how to record something, which mm -hmm. we have tried to do our best job, but we're not professionals in it. Mm -hmm. So we've had a couple of hiccups, and I think that people that are listening right now will have heard those hiccups before. Uh, but we're still trying to uh, to manage that, and obviously working with people that are so busy. Veterinarians are chronically busy. Is hard to sit down and say, "Can you sit and talk to me for fifteen minutes?" Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, but so far, we've had uh, a lot of support from the school itself and a lot of support from uh, the listeners. So. I think what I would like to do now, since this is going to be the last episode of uh, this season, if you want to call it, which basically means we're going to take a break for for the semester and we'll come back next semester, which is probably only a couple of weeks that we're going to have a break. <laughs> but um, what I would like to know is where do you see this podcast going to? Like, where do you where, what would you like us to do with this podcast? I think I would like um so we're obviously been focusing on people in the community to learn about our program and pe people within our community in the vet school to learn about us faculty members and various other people. I'd like to do a little bit of one of the things I love to do is continuing education of veterinarians. And so I'd love to interview some faculty and maybe um, review some recent publications to kind of get push out some new information. So when they're driving in their vet truck, um, you can listen to information about um, a research paper and not have to like consign it to like bathroom reading which you never get to <laughs> so uh, make you know make it a little more uh, have us a couple of episodes focus on some recent research what about you Kelly well so selfishly I think about um, what the kinds of things that I think about and worry about with the students and and they're often things like are they sleeping enough are they eating enough are they doing anything outside of school and so for me I think because I don't see them all that often um, having an opportunity to use this as a way to share some of the information with them that I think is really important about that like what do you do when you can't get to sleep at night? Those kinds of things uh, would be something that I would love to be able to to record some podcasts so that if I'm not seeing them in class, I can have an opportunity to remind them that they need to eat three meals a day and that they need to sleep more than two or three hours a night and those kinds of things that they they kind of know it, but some of the things that get in their way, being able to share that information with more of them more broadly without needing their class time all the time would be great. Yeah. So um, we have uh, people with a lot of uh, different areas of expertise inside of the school, um, even just the people that participate in this podcast, which is just a small percentage of the people that work here. Uh, we have a lot of varied um expertise uh, mm -hmm. areas. So um, I think that uh, I would like to invite our listeners uh, or anybody else that is interested in, in knowing anything about the vet school, about mm -hmm. the profession, about mental and um, economic health, about uh, anything else that, is, that we had talked about before, um, that uh, send us a message, send it either through our email, which is announced at the end of the podcast, or through the Facebook page of the uh, school we got the podcast announced all the time so you're more than welcome to leave us your questions there and i would like to continue to do the podcast i would like to start uh doing a couple of uh episodes that are focused in a particular area like research 
um, like um, recommendations for colleagues, recommendations for students from other schools, um, recommendations to uh, teachers and educators everywhere, mm -hmm. because that's another thing that we're working on here is how do we pass that information, all the information that has to do with veterinary medicine to our students, which is really hard. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but um, I think this would be a good point uh, to stop. Uh, and I want to thank everyone that has been listening to our episodes for uh, your support. And uh, please continue to listen to us. We'll come back next year at one point. This has been the Raider Vet Podcast. For more information, visit the Vet School's Facebook page or email us to svm at ttu.edu.